we have a lot of material. Uh, Dr. Hatch, I want to I want to uh, tout his book again one more time. A stranger in Jerusalem. Now I know we've all, at least I have, um, and and see I'm way too arrogant in my own mind in this regard. Uh, I have read the New Testament several times. I do study the Greek a little bit, not nearly as much as I want to. I would love to get fluent, but I've just got to start plugging in the time. I've got lexicons and dictionaries and all that jazz that I look into all the time when someone's using the Bible. And I, th I thought I had pretty much taken an assessment of the New Testament. Okay, yeah, I, I, I get it. I, I understand what it's all about, you know, all that. Sometimes we do that, those of us who read it four or five or six, seven times. And then along comes a man like Dr. Hatch, a stranger in Jerusalem. And after I read this book, I realized that I'm a stranger to the New Testament. So I am so excited to have you on the show again. And tonight we want to talk about our arch enemies of Jesus, whom he constantly got the better of. Yes, those dastardly Pharisees. That's right. What do you say about these guys? <laughs> <laughs> now that I've set the stage, uh, you're going to refute me, aren't you? Yes, I'm going to refute you. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Why don't you go ahead and take it away, Doctor Hatch, and uh, let, let's uh, let's learn some really cool stuff about Pharisees tonight. Okay, so we can and we can I, I could talk for like I don't know, like an hour, an hour and a half, just on the Pharisees. So we'll track the time and see how long it takes to get through this material, and then if we have enough time, I'll I'll talk about a related issue of why the Pharisee the Pharisees are demonized. Um, we'll go into depth on that, but. And if, if we don't have time, we can do that episode later. So let's just dive in and hopefully you take all the time you need, my friend. Cool. We're here for the evening. So okay, we'll we'll dive in and and uh, there's all kinds of we we really could do four hours on this. But the essentially, in fact, let me share my screen just briefly, and then I'll sure. Um, Welcome to Dan Vogel, by the way. He just showed up, and Lee Mortensen. Oh, Lee Mortensen. Welcome. So yeah, uh, you're welcome to pop something on the screen. Uh, I think it's up to here. We go. Yeah. All right. Let's take a look at what you've got here. If you guys can see this, I've just I pulled up this PowerPoint that I used, and there's a lot of different um, points in here uh, that I use for classes and elsewhere. But I always show this picture, LDS Living. It says four signs. This is a couple of years ago. Four signs you're acting like a Pharisee and how to stop now. <laughs> um, let me show you real quick. Also, after tonight, you're going to need to make one of those posters and say, four signs you're acting like a Pharisee and congratulations, huh? That's right. And, that, and, and next time I get a license plate, it's going to say Pharisee. <laughs> um, what, what this does, in fact, I, I wrote, I don't want to pile on LDS Living because there's some other stuff they do that's pretty good. But I wrote them and I said, this is. I have a lot of contacts in the Jewish community. I, I wrote, I compiled a book. I edited a book with Leonard Greenspoon, who's the Jewish Studies Chair at Creighton, a Latter-day Saint and a Jewish sort of a dialogue thing. I have a lot of connections, and 
I wrote them, I said, I'm involved in dialogue and I'm, I'm only one of a handful of people um, in the, at the university or an entire church that has PhD level training in Jewish studies. And so I'm tapped into what they're saying and this does not look good. This hurts our cause and our communication with them. Oh. Right. So can you please take it down? And they just left it up. And so I use this with my students and I'm this sort of thing is from a deficit perspective. I mean, this is like saying this would be like evangelicals saying something like, here's four signs you're acting like um, the Latter-day Saints or Latter-day Saint leaders or something yeah. like that. Right. Um, so did they respond to you back, Trevin? They never, they? No, they never, they never responded. Okay. All right. And so let me show you another clip. Here's LDS Living. I show this to my students. So I'm just kind of seeing these over on the side with my PowerPoints. What you have is, and I just have little points that I ask. Anti-Semitism, Dewey's Latter-day Saint, in the Latter-day Saint tradition, do this. Uh, did Pharisees kill Jesus? Who cares if they did? I ask these questions at the beginning of class. But the reason why I have these pictures is just to get them start to thinking about how we represent other people. And you notice that Jesus' interlocutors uh, they look kind of nefarious. They, you know, there's typical Jewish features, they, the way they move their eyes, their darker skin. And then you have this guy who looks like the priesthood holder. You have Jesus's blue eyes, you know, that the Anti-Defamation League sued Living Scriptures. All right. And I think Living Scriptures did a good job in the 80s and 90s. Not everything's historical, but we have to produce something for our kids. And so I don't I don't want to pile on them either. But I'm just giving you a. Uh, ideas and, and examples of how we represent other people okay and so the so this is to stop sharing but that's that's one example and so here is my argument about jesus and the pharisees i've had this i've done numerous podcasts and youtube episodes so we'll just walk through again and maybe this will be the most detailed episode that i've done um the Pharisees, to start out, I guess we could say a background, an overview of the Pharisees is that you have these groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, people hear all that, they sort of roll off the tongue, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes. In the centuries, or I guess a few generations, yeah, probably a century and a half at least before Jesus, you have these groups that are starting to form that are called different names. And we have this group that is goes down to the Dead Sea, they leave Jerusalem, they move to the Dead Sea and what we call Qumran, the Dead Sea sect, the people who wrote a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we have their letters in there that they say, we left Jerusalem, you Sadducees, the Sadducean class up in Jerusalem. Okay, this is the temple establishment aristocracy. We left you guys because you're corrupt. And we actually have a letter in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's called, the abbreviated is 4QMMT, K4 at Qumran. MMT stands for the Hebrew Miksat Maase HaTorah, which means the precepts of the law, precepts of the Torah, precepts of the law. These are the, this is the laws that you people in Jerusalem are not following. They say, you know, we're right in how the temple and how the law should be followed in the temple, um, temple rituals, temple laws, but you're following this other group. They don't say the Pharisees, but the Pharisees are another popular group that Josephus talks about. Okay, so we already kind of see these groups forming, the reason why we have the Dead Sea sect and the scenes. And the Pharisees come on the scene. The first time they are mentioned in Josephus is in the 150s BCE, in that uh, in that setting. So when you have the Hasmoneans, 
Yeah. You've got these group of people that wrested the temple in the region away from the Greeks, and, and they took back the temple. They placed a king, a Hasmonean king, on the throne. And so what we have is, for the first time in 400 years since Jeremiah, we have an autonomous Jewish state with a king. Okay? Right at that time is when you have Pharisees show up in Josephus. And, and Josephus says that these Pharisees are popular with the masses. And he, and he shows that they're always in connection with the king, jousting or checking or rivaling the king. So in my mind and what I write in my book is that it seems that the Pharisees are fulfilling or are filling the role of the former prophets. Right. They're not because we have prophets, priests, kings. Right. So when we have a new autonomous state, we have priests, we got kings, but we have no prophets. I'm not saying the Pharisees were prophets, but Joseph, but Josephus laments the fact that people assumed that Pharisees had a foreknowledge of things to come. In other words, they can prophesy. But Josephus mentions this, um, and he and he gives us several examples of how these Pharisees are able to foresee the future, or that at least people thought they did. Okay, so my argument is just like you have Isaiah and Hezekiah, right? You have a prophet and you have a king, and the the prophet is a kingmaker. He's checking the king. The same thing you have with Samuel and Saul. Same thing you have with Nathan and David. Uh, on and on, right? Mm -hmm. In ancient Israel, the prophet could make or break the, the king's basically career, so to speak. You have the same thing with Jeremiah and Zedekiah. So that's where the lights went off for me is that the Pharisees, right when they show up, at least according to Josephus, who's writing later, these people are with John Hyrcanus, who's the, the Hasmonean king, with Alexander Eunaeus, Alexander Salome. These are the Hasmonean kings, and they're constantly um, wrestling ideologically with Pharisees. What happens is that you have John Hyrcanus. He doesn't accept them into his administration, so to speak. He pushes them away, and it leads to a lot of protests against him. And then in John Hyrcanus, this is just to orient yourself. This is 134 to 104 is, his, is, is the time he sat on the throne, BC, BCE. Towards the end of his death, or sorry, towards the end of his life, right before he dies, he tells his successor, his wife, Salome, he says, you have to um, capitulate to the Pharisees. It's going to be too hard. The people are going to hate you. You have to capitulate to them. So Salome does that. She brings Pharisees in. She, she consults with them, and she takes their rulings of the law. This is really about the law. What are your rulings of the law, and how can I uh, help as a king? All right? The law, the law of Moses. Law, yeah, the law of Moses. Right. Yeah, right. And so now what we see is we have these kings that are following the Pharisees or not following the Pharisees, and they're either popular or unpopular with the masses. You have this Sadducean sect who are at odds with the Pharisees up in Jerusalem. You have the Dead Sea Scroll, the Qumran sect, who are at odds with the Sadducees in Jerusalem because they're following Pharisees, right? And so you have these groups start to form, and it's all about interpretation of how the law and the temple should be run, should be managed, okay? So that's kind of a, a crash course of who these groups are. And we'll, as we go along, hopefully you can see whether where whether you're entrenched in the, still in the latter saint tradition or if you're a broader Christian, what this matters for Christians today. Why does it matter? And what are the implications of how we present and portray the Pharisees? Okay, so keep that in mind as we, as we go along. Because it's not just some academic, esoteric topic that doesn't really matter. That matters a great deal, and hopefully that'll become clear as we go along. Okay. So, 
So can I can I ask a quick question? Yeah. So I just want to uh, just to make sure that my audience understands that I understand. I, I've been seeing several of them coming in late, so I want to reiterate this. Um, your your approach is that the Okay, so we're looking at about 150 BC or so. So that's quite a ways before Jesus. And it appears not necessarily as prophesiers of future events, but as social uh, criticizers, as people who want to help. <laughs> You're going to kill me. My audience is going to kill me for saying this, but <laughs> the Pharisees want to help Israel stay on the covenant path. And so they're kind of, in a way, fulfilling the role of the prophets who, for all we know, they kind of disappeared in history after Malachi. Of course, now, the the Old Testament arrangement, from my understanding, uh, is, is a Christian. It, the, Malachi is not the last book in the Old Testament from the Jewish side. Am I wrong in understanding that? No, you're right. You're right. You have books like Daniel that are way in the second century, right during this time period that are, are written and expanded. Yeah. There, there's other later texts, but the early Jewish, you, you do have a tradition in early Judaism of the prophets ending with Malachi and Zechariah and, ha you know, some, some of these prophets. But what the rabbis will talk about is that there's a lower form of prophecy. It's still there. And we even have, scholars, even Latter-Saint scholars like Don Perry, who published an academic, I think with Brill, an academic volume on prophecy in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And oh. you have other books, Ben Sira, and you have even Josephus. You have these texts that are, that presupposes or implies prophecy still being alive and well, and people looking for a prophet to come and believing that people like Pharisees had a foreknowledge of things, like a lower form of prophecy. God is still working through them. So you have these competing agenda of prophets are gone versus prophets are still here uh, ministering to us. Yeah, because we, we have that Latter-day Saint tradition that uh, Malachi, boom, now we got 400 years. And then all of a sudden, ta-da, there's John the Baptist. Right. <laughs> you know, it, 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 that's the intertestamental literature gap is how we've been taught in seminary and all that jazz, but there's a 400-year gap. So so this is kind of new to me. This is really interesting how the Pharisees with with, and the Jews never did say prophecy just ended. That might be more of a Christian interpretation rather than how the Jews would see it. So that this is really quite interesting. So we're, we're talking about a continuation here. Uh, and the Pharisees are a major part of that continuation all the way up past. In fact, I'm not trying to jump the gun here. Uh, if we're going to talk about it, it's great. But so I'm seeing the Pharisees, 150 BC, all the way up into Jesus's day. They're still Pharisees. Uh, the Jews, according to Josephus, it was the zealots and all those idiots ticked off the Romans. They wiped the Jews out, destroyed the temple. The Pharisees ended up being. Uh, it, um, going into the rabbinical, they continued. The Sadducees didn't, but the Pharisees did. Do I have that timeline right? They, yeah, they all continued in some way, but you, you, you essentially have it. But you have Josephus writing at the end of the first century, very end of the first century, and he's writing um, about Pharisees for in the present. 
So he writes about them in the 150s. He writes about them at the time of Jesus. He writes about them in all in the, the 200 years before him. But according to Steve Mason's dissertation, he wrote this, this guy, Steve Mason, wrote a book on Pharisees in Josephus, a, a groundbreaking book in the early 90s. And he went through a big, thick book and he looked, dissected all the language and shows in his, his position that Josephus is talking about them all along the way in the present tense as if it's a current reality. So it's oh. possible that his representation of them in the 150s might not be accurate, but what he says about them, we can compare to the Gospels, we can compare to what Josephus is saying, that what the Pharisees are doing in his day, and we can put all the pieces together, and we can come up with a pretty solid idea of what people thought about Pharisees and how they acted in general, all right? So, and then you talk about in the rabbinic period, there are the rabbis, some rabbis saying we are from the Pharisaic line and tradition. Other people are not, I don't think they're using the Sadducee, Sadducean term, but they are using the priests. The Sadducees are priests. Um, in fact, I forgot well, to mention Sadducee, Sabbath. Right, Zadok. Right, yeah, the the, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. High priest in the time of David. And this is why I, there's a little bit debate on, I won't spend much time on this, but there's a little bit of a debate on the Dead Sea um, sect. Are they a scene like a large majority, if not almost every scholar says those are an Essene, that's an Essene group. There are scenes down there. The question that I have, I'm not a Dead Sea Scroll scholar, but I'm an early Jewish scholar. I study this stuff uh, as much as anybody. And what doesn't make sense to me is like the letter that they wrote referring to the Sadducean group. This seems like a priestly Sadducean group that broke away and then they called themselves Sadukim, sons of Sadok. We are the sons of Sadok, Sadukim, right? That's where you get Sadducees. So they're calling themselves Sadducees. So, I mean, it doesn't really matter if they're Essenes or Sadducees. The point, though, is that these, this, is a, this is a priestly group, and they survive into the, into the rabbinic period as priests. Okay, so cool. Um, uh, let me mention real quick also, before I forget, is that people who push, push back against my argument will say, like if they don't know the issues enough, they, they haven't read Steve Mason's book, they, and they haven't read my book, they'll say, you use Josephus a lot, but Josephus is biased. Of course he's going to say these things about Pharisees because he's biased. He likes the Pharisees because he was a Pharisee. That's what they'll say. But hmm. Steve Mason and others have showed that when Josephus in his autobiography, when he says, when he hints that he's a Pharisee, it doesn't say he's a Pharisee. It says, I follow the rulings of the Pharisees. And there's other passages in Josephus where he says the Sadducees followed the rulings of the Pharisees. Otherwise, nobody would, nobody would, you know, in other words, the Sadducees are running the temple and society according to the Pharisees' uh, interpretation of the law. Okay, so, okay, so Josephus, we are supposed to believe Josephus so long as he is translated correctly. That's right. And so he's not, he's not a Pharisee. He hates the Pharisees. And Steve Mason shows this it's unmistakable. Like he laments the fact that people say that they think that they're prophets. He even names his, Josephus names his son Hyrcanus after John Hyrcanus, who hated Pharisees. Yeah. And I mean, he's, Josephus himself is from a priestly family. He doesn't like the Pharisees. So when he says that they're popular with the masses, and I'll show you some of the things he says about them, we can take that. I mean, we can take that uh, to the bank pretty much. Okay. Yeah, well, he may speak from a biased point of view. So Yeah, in fact, uh, let me share. If I share my screen again, I'll just show I've got some of these. Probably quotes. a pretty historical approach there. 
Yeah, okay, window. Welcome, Patty Cake, by the way, while he's pulling up the screen. And Heather Reddick, welcome. Love seeing all my audience. I love this audience. These guys are so smart and good and funny and clever, and they goof off. Nobody's listening to us. They'll come back and watch the video later. <laughs> okay, yeah, commenting. Yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> I hope. Oh, and Patty Cake. You got to say hi to Patty Cake, baby. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, uh, get with it. I'm the one that got to pull up the screen. Okay, here we go. Okay, here's just a few. I had this up on the screen to keep me focused. And so here's, a, I'll just let you guys read along with me. Here's some ideas sure. in Josephus about who the Pharisees are, the popularity of the Pharisees, because this is crucial. He says that this first, this first point, he says, Sadducee in doctrine is received by but a few, yet those by still the greatest dignity. See, he's, 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 a, he's a Sadducee and sympathizer. Sadducean doctrine is received by but a few, but by those of the greatest dignity. But they are they are able to do almost nothing of themselves, for when they become magistrates, they addict themselves to the notions of the Pharisees because the multitude would not otherwise bear them. Right? Oh. So they have to accept Pharisees and because the Pharisees are popular with the masses. And the second point, the Pharisees are so great in their influence with the masses that even when they speak against a king or high priest, they immediately gain credence. Um, so, also, the, so the reason the the reason the Pharisees were probably the most popular is because they allowed the rock and roll, and the Sadducees went with the country music, right? <laughs> country music, and then there's and there's reasons why, and you'll see <laughs> you'll see why the, the, the people, you know, why the Pharisees were popular with the people. So here in the third one, the populace observed all prayers and sacred rites of divine worship. This is the English translation of Josephus, according to the direction of the Pharisees. The inhabitants of the cities recognize the excellence of the Pharisees because they practice the highest ideals, both in the way of living and in their and their discourse. In other words, they practice what they preached. Okay, that's not you. That's not what we get in the dictionary definition of the Pharisees. So then, no. on the bottom of the screen, Pharisees, the, the, the Gospels agree, and the, the example I use is in Luke 11, where Jesus is giving a sermon. He's giving this exhortation. Then a Pharisee interrupts his sermon and then invites Jesus as an honored guest to his to his home as an honored guest. So this and is he attended. And he attended, yeah. And this is telling because there, he went there. You don't have any riots. Like if people hated the Pharisees so much, if they were these dirty rotten scoundrels who were chasing Galilean holy men around the countryside in Galilee, saying you can't eat that corn on the Sabbath. And they're trying to stone women. You wouldn't have the crowds, you know, just accepting them, accepting their law, liking them. And then when they show up to Jesus, I mean, they they would they would riot. They would have rioted against the Pharisees the same way they did with John Hyrcanus and Herod and other people. Okay. Yeah. And, and let me add on this Luke eleven. Uh, I've got my scripture open here. This is where. Uh, Jesus is teaching them how to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and so on and so forth. So this is a pretty important uh, section, and he was teaching them some pretty important materials. And this is where they are. Now, now, how far did that go? One to 36. Yeah, and, and this is where he was accused of casting out the devils through the power of Beelzebub. So there's some tension going on. He's teaching, and then the, the Jews, the people are, are getting mad at him, according to Luke, and so on and so forth. And yet he is invited to that. Uh, that's very interesting, yeah. Yeah, in fact, uh, since I have these... Uh... 
PowerPoint open. I'll just, if you guys, I, do you think people would want me to leave these open so they can read along with it? Sure. Yeah. 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 Just go ahead and go through them. This I'll, is just, great. I'll just leave this up here and, and talk so you guys can see that. You bet. You bet. That'd be wonderful. Okay. So we've also got um, the religious devotion. Oh, hey, here's, here's a question. Can we, can I pop a question real quick from Rebecca, Rebecca Biblioteca? Yeah, uh, how do you become a Pharisee? Were they born into it? Is it an election or an appointment? Is it an ordination? That's a great question, actually. It's a, yeah, it's a very good question. And we don't know. We, we don't have the answer. We don't know what kind of group, if it was this. Josephus says there were 6,000 Pharisees. And we don't know what kind of ordination. I mean, even that word, like, to become a rabbi, you know, people, a lot of times people talk about Jesus as a rabbi. And he was, a, you know, and then they they take all of this, uh, not baggage, but all of this other stuff about later rabbis, the rabbinic, you know, system, and they dump it onto Jesus. It's that's not a first century ordination. There are only two people in the entire first century. All of the documents in the first century that are named rabbi, it's Jesus and it's John the Baptist. Huh. Right. It's just a teacher. So Pharisees, we don't know. Um, we don't even know what the word means. Some people think it means separatists, but it could also be that they didn't call themselves Pharisees. But what these people are, are guardians of the law. They went through some sort of schooling and they have some sort of uh, profession, I guess, where they are guardians of the law and they're trying to make sure that people follow it. It could be the same kind of thing where you read about in Hebrew Bible, where there's the school of prophets. They actually use that. You're of the school of prophets. You were the son of a prophet, and therefore you were raised up. People thought Saul was among this group of a uh, school or a son of prophets, where yeah. it's sort of your lineage and you're trained in the legal interpretations of this group, and therefore you could go out into the public and people can ask you questions. You can be at the temple, you can be in the synagogue, and you can be answering these questions. But we don't actually know um, how rigid this is and what the, if there's some sort of initiation if it was like the Qumran sect where you had to be initiated into it, we just don't know. All right. Interesting. All right. Okay. So here is um, a few points about the religious devotion of Pharisees. So we can kind of see before we go to uh, the New Testament, Josephus says that Hyrcanus, John Hyrcanus was desirous to be a righteous man. He hated the Pharisees, but he finally, he says, I want to be more righteous, that term. And so he, and he wanted, let's see, what does it say? I want to be a righteous man and do all the things whereby he might please God, which was the profession of the Pharisees also. Just oh, interesting. So then Pharisees tried to, Hyrcanus pulls in the Pharisees and says, how do I, you know, how do I be more God-fearing and follow the law the way you do it? Okay, so Josephus also says that they're popular on account of their virtuous conduct, both in the actions of their lives and their discourse. I think we already showed that. And then the two words that he, that he, he, Associates with Pharisees the most are Dikaios and Eusebia. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Toward God, right? Yeah. So, love God and love your neighbor. Uh huh. Okay. Uh -huh. So, Eusebia, isn't that, isn't that, uh, Eusebia, the piety? Eusebia, yeah. Piety toward piety or justice yeah, yeah, yeah. toward God. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So All you, right. We'll just keep going along to show you a little bit more about what Jesus uh, Josephus says about them. They are friendly to one another and have regard for the public. I don't have any of the citations all in the book, but, okay, they're friendly to one another. They have regard for the public. They're polite with the elderly, and they never contradict them in anything which they have, 
introduced, right? So if you have an older, wiser person, even somebody who is maybe has Alzheimer's and don't know what they're saying, the Pharisees still are polite uh, toward them. He's making a point to say that they treat their elderly with respect. They avoid a life of luxury and despise delicacies in diet. Right? No, well, then forget it. I don't want to be a Pharisee. <laughs> I've got to have my donuts. <laughs> so making them out to be these sort of gluttons and uh, people, you know, in the in the, a lot of the movies, yeah, the Jesus movies, approach, isn't it? Yeah. sitting there eating with, and they always make them sloppy, eating with greasy, greasy chicken. You know, I, I don't know if you guys have seen those movies. The church and outside the church, they do this. They make them look ridiculous, but they avoided a life of luxury, despise delicacies, delicacies and diet. And this is a key, this last point here, you can see on the screen, is key. They are not apt to be severe in punishments. There are several places where Josephus says that they were um, they were the most lenient in their punishment of all the other groups. Okay? So here these three examples are Simaeus, Gamaliel, and Nicodemus. You have, and these are just three, I could list many of them, but you have all throughout Josephus where um, somebody was brought into the Sanhedrin for a certain crime, and it's always... Sad when there's Sadducees and any Pharisees there, it's always the Sadducees that say that they have a harsher punishment, we're going to kill him. And it's always the Pharisees that say, No, he needs a proper trial, just whip him. And this is what Simaeus does Simaeus, <laughs> representing the Pharisaic group in the Sanhedrin, he says the same thing. Gamaliel, those Sadducees and figure out how they can get more well liked by the public, then right. I mean, for Pete's sake, imitate the Pharisees, you dingalings. Why be so? All the time, yeah, interesting. Gamaliel, same thing. If you remember, he saved the saved the early Christians. Like the Sanhedrin said, these people we need to bring in. We actually need to kill Paul, you know. And he says, just let them look, let them do their thing. If, if what they're saying is true, the fruits will show that, and they'll discredit themselves. Paul, on, on occasion, he gets brought in, and he has there's some Sadducees and there's Pharisees, and he knows that they hate each other, and so he he says he throws out resurrection, and they start arguing, fighting, but it's the Sadducees who want to kill him, the Pharisees who want to save them. Same thing with Nicodemus at the trial; he's the one that steps up and says, "Shouldn't he have a proper trial?" Right? Oh, um, this, yeah. very, this is very very uh, crucial to understand. But this. they're more involved in the human rights and the and the. Um... Let's let's be as uh, impartial and just as we can. Yeah, no wonder they were more popular with the public. You uh, seriously, you'd think the Sadducees could have figured that out. That's interesting. That's right. And I put now. Now it's the Sadducees who did not believe in the uh, resurrection. Do I have that right? The yeah, Pharisees they didn't, did even the resurrection. No, I think I've got a slide up here somewhere. Maybe we'll get to it. Yeah, oh, they didn't. Oh, okay. I'm not trying to get ahead. I just want to make sure I'm distinguishing the doctrines. So it yeah. should be here. If it's not in here, we'll make that point. But um, also, right. before I forget, this picture up here on the screen. Go and sin no more. Though you know, he who's about sin cast per stone. John eight. That if I, I maybe I have it in here somewhere. But if not, I want to make sure that's not in the original manuscripts. It's not in second, third, early fourth century manuscripts. That story does not exist. It's not really. It showed up in the fourth century, and it doesn't even. It's, so some of my colleagues here and, and some evangelical scholars will say, "Okay, yes, this doesn't show up in the manuscripts." And so even conservative Bibles like NIV have a parenthetical little blurb thing that says this is not in the original manuscripts. Right? So Larry C. Community people have to catch up to even evangelical uh, Bibles and evangelical understandings. All right. The, the point of why some scribes stuck that in there is because it shows it's to demonize 
It's to show that Christianity, represented through Jesus, is uh, forgiving and nice, and, and that the Pharisees, Judaism, as represented through the Pharisees, is bloodthirsty and and you know, there's no compassion, there's no forgiveness. Okay. All right. Interesting. Uh, let's move along here. Okay. Here. Okay. Right here. Here's the theology of the Pharisees. They oh, here we go. Yeah. In fate and free will, afterlife, resurrection, reward and punishment in the afterlife, and angels. Sadducees disagreed on all those, and in the Gospels and Acts, support all of these claims. And you can see here the citation: Matthew twenty-two, Mark twelve, Luke twenty, Acts twenty-three. Right. So again, we can take Josephus what he says, compare it to the Gospels, and even the earliest strata of rabbinic literature, a little bit in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we can start to put the pieces together of what this group is generally about. All right, interesting. And in my book, I put together, okay, it's good we, I just pulled this this PowerPoint up for my, to keep myself uh, on track, but it's good we're pulling this up because you guys can actually see what I did, like in my book, I went and counted every time the Pharisees were mentioned and which episode. So there's 97 times they're mentioned in the Gospels and Acts in 38 different episodes or settings. So they're pretty prominent. Yeah, pretty prominent. And 17 of the 38 or 44 percent of the episodes seem to portray Pharisees negatively. And so I go through and I deal with all of the positive first and combine Josephus and say, here is what the Pharisees are doing. And it's most likely that Jesus is a Pharisaic type Jew. If they weren't Pharisees proper, they, like Josephus, are following the rulings of the Pharisees and are influenced by Pharisees and are Pharisaic you know, type Jews. Interesting. And here is a list of what, according to all the literature of what, I don't know if you guys can see this, of what a Pharisee is, okay? Like the Pharisees, Jesus was popular with the masses, and this is also Jesus, okay? Like Pharisees, Jesus was known for being religiously devoted and concerned about following Jewish law. Like the Pharisees, Jesus was viewed by many as a prophet, that's actually explicitly mentioned. Like the Pharisees, Jesus believed in divine providence, resurrection angels, reward and punishment in the afterlife. Like the Pharisees, Jesus was known as a wise teacher of Jewish law. He supported the various purity rituals and washings, which we just recorded an episode on that before we jumped on live. So that'll be coming up. He was friendly to the public, rejected a life of luxury, was lenient in his punishment, at least according to the Gospels, uh, you know, the writers. He despised the chief priests and the Sadducean establishment like everyone else. And I say here, this this defines Pharisaism in general. Of what people. Oh my gosh, you're not going to get in trouble by our beloved BYU, are you, for saying Jesus is a Pharisee, are you? <laughs> you yeah. better not be. Some of them, some of them, I'll, I'll yeah. defend you. No kidding. All those kids. Now that's remarkable. That's, I mean, it's not like it's just a couple of odd points. There's quite a few points there that some of them are. Seriously, quite specific. Now, see, you don't you don't necessarily get this point of view in Sunday school, do you? That's interesting. Yeah, we're, we're climbing uphill. We're definitely it's an uphill battle of of how we the you know, leaders of Israel. Okay, so if we continue, here's a few other points that I'll just kind of talk through. Them. We we already mentioned Dikaios for you I love your cartoon. Right, right on, Linus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> That's right. Oh, that makes my night. <laughs> so we just mentioned these two words, Dikaios and Eusebia. 
let me talk through some of these other things. Okay, some of these other points. So it's the Pharisee that warned Jesus of Herod Antipas. It's the in at least in Luke, it's the reason why. Okay, wait, wait. Jerusalem. Luke 13, 31. The Pharisees are the ones warning Jesus. Really, I gotta look this up. I don't mean to be skeptical, but 1331. I got it here real quick. Uh, the same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will. Wow, I had never. Oh, wow. Okay. And what's what? Well, why do you suspect they would be the ones to warn him? Well, let me let me ask you, Carrie, or anybody else who wants to answer. What's the if you know the traditional interpretation or the polemic even against Pharisees? How do they? How do conservative Christians typically bend this as a negative portrayal of Pharisees? And they one of those. Oh negative. yeah, we can't stand you. Get out. Yeah, they they want him to go to Jerusalem because that's where they can get him and and turn him yeah. over to. Right. It's it's an awful awful. Uh, interpretation and you'll see we'll see why okay so all right number one they're following around they're following jesus around the galilee area they're always with them Mm. what are the odds that and matthew does this all the time he says pharisees and sadducees he he couples them together he combines them together and says pharisees and sadducees are following jesus around and he's they're following into a synagogue and say you can't heal that that man's arm or you can't pick up that grain and eat it on the sabbath you know you can't do that Number one, regardless of those stories and the settings, which I can explain, they're following, they're always with them. Okay. Yeah, they are actually. Yeah. It doesn't matter where he's at either. And he travels quite extensively sometimes. He goes way the heck up there in the north. That's right. Well, in his ministry. That's interesting. And my position is that they're actually followers of Jesus or in the same camp as Jesus, at least in Luke. The reason why I say that is because if you go all the way through Luke, and we'll, we'll talk more about this as we go along, we can assume that there's a negative intention, but they're either with him all the time, re- inviting him to, as an honored guest in the mealtime symposia, which the banquet, which we'll talk about. So warning with Herod, with him all the time. They go to Jerusalem with him. And, and so I'm saying they like Jesus. And here's another example. So after Jesus leaves, actually, sorry, let me back up in case I forget to deal with when he goes into a synagogue and they when he healed that person's arm if you remember that in matthew yeah. and mark without without touching him right without touching him so there, just there's spoke. no just spoke yeah there's no jewish law i deal with this in my master's thesis when i i also wrote about the pharisees there i deal with this there's i i searched far and wide for any laws against healing or against speaking on the sabbath there's no laws against it the dead sea scrolls have a law against speaking idle speaking about superficial or idle or frivolous things or business matters on the Sabbath. And if you are, you have to remove yourself. And you oh, have to I'm, I am so flipping doomed. <laughs> I have not a chance to be a good Jewish guy. Darn it. I'm right. too trivial. <laughs> <laughs> and so what happens is in Mark and Matthew, it says that when he healed him by not touching him, they left the synagogue and conspired with each other on how to destroy Jesus. The, the word destroy, kill him. It's Luke that comes along. The author of Luke says the language in the Greek says that when they exited the synagogue, they were confused or curious. The word is enoia. They were. Okay, wait a sec. You're saying 
Okay, this is one of the reasons why I love I, I love having you because you're a New Testament scholar. So the Greek word uh, does not mean seeking to destroy Jesus. It's more in line with being perplexed. Perplexed, confused. It says that, the, that's quite a that's quite a difference in the translation. Yeah, instead instead of saying they were filled with fury, they were it, some some translations say that they were filled with Anoia, which is they were perplexed. This is early in his ministry, and they were they were talking amongst each other on what they should do in the case of Jesus. Who is right. this guy? How do we rule like he's clearly healing somebody? And we have clear laws about being uh, about going to a physician. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's so, so in a way, they're they're probably trying to figure out. Um, We've got to keep the law here. We've got to keep the law. We've got to make sure that this guy, one of our friends, keeps the law. But doggone it, he's healing on the Sabbath. And, and that's very perplexing because we didn't see him do anything. Right. W would that be a better understanding and reading of that? Be so now they're talking among themselves going, holy cow, how did he skirt the law that way? Um, we he He's talked. But how on earth did that happen? That's interesting. That is so. The Greek word is what? Anoia. I think it's anoia. Yeah, anoia. Interesting. That's cool. That's really cool. And I could go. I go down every just like John eight, the stoning of the woman. It's not in the original manuscript. Or on a case like this, the Gospels disagree. And I'll give you some other um, uh, some other examples here. But in this third bullet point, okay. So they warn. They warn. Jesus of Herod Antipas, he had just killed John the Baptist, and this is why Jesus went to Jerusalem. Okay, so then we continue and read in Luke, and on his way to Jerusalem, he has many discussions with Pharisees. And on one case, on one occasion, a Pharisee says, what do you do with people who have removed themselves outside the house of Israel? Like, this is a common debate. A lot of times when they're in their, the mealtime banquet, they say, wait, are you eating with sinners? Are you eating with them? We'll talk about this in a minute, but that's the if there was ever a debate between Jesus and the Pharisees, a legitimate rabbinic style debate, which they everybody debated, that was the debate. They're saying, Jesus, you are taking people who have removed who are outside the house of Israel or have removed themselves outside the house of Israel or are impure in other ways. They're tax collectors, which means they're basically gangsters, they're tax farmers, they're handling money with images and, and they're doing the work of Rome, and you're just, you're, like, you're inviting them into our mealtime banquet. Are you friends with these people? What are you doing? They have this same debate on the way to Jerusalem. They're, they're going down the Jordan Valley, and a Pharisee says the same question. What do you do with somebody who leaves, and, and you know how do you, how do you navigate this? And then he gives three parables. He has the parable of the lost coin, where the woman searches high and low to find the coin, and when she found it, she was overjoyed. The parable of the, the lost sheep where you leave the 99 and find the lost sheep, right? And right. then you have the, the brother the brother and the prodigal, the prodigal, the, what's it called? The, we call it the prodigal son, but it's it's really about two brothers, the, the, the brothers and the prodigal. Okay, so in uh, there, yeah, the older brother, yeah, 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 the older brother. You guys know that situation. Again, this is a mealtime sort of setting, and this is kind of a, a teaser for my next, either later today if we have time, or in another episode of why the Pharisees are demonized and a lot of that has to do with the Jerusalem Council later on when Paul and Barnabas and Peter are arguing over these Gentiles and Jews not eating together and that whole issue. And right. 
it just exploded. And I'll explain to that later. But what happens is these these authors are writing after the temple is destroyed, when Christianity, the, the Jesus movement and Pharisees has had the schism. And so they keep answering the current issue, which is about who belongs what about our mealtime banquet? Type yeah, by that by that time, that makes sense because by that time, didn't the Ebionites they kind of stuck with James and stuck in Jerusalem, didn't they? Yep that that was one of the big uh, that was one of the big uh, heated issues with Paul as far as that goes. That's right. And all, and all, James, yeah, yeah, I'll, interesting. I'll detail it out um, in the future, but what this shows is it's, it's yet another instance where Jesus and Pharisees are talking about who belongs, who doesn't, what do we deal with, repentance, forgiveness, and then he gives this parable. And he's, of course, the guy left, right, took his inheritance, left, not just left the house of Israel, he not just left his father, but he went out of his way to leave the house of Israel because he was in a Gentile city with pigs and prostitutes and everything, right? So it's setting this up. He comes back, and it's the older brother who says, no, no, I'm not going to go in and eat at the banquet, and you're, you're giving him all this treatment, and He's impure. He's coming back. He doesn't deserve all this. He squandered everything, right? That's that's the typical Pharisee-Jesus debate. But look right here on the screen that I, in Luke 15, 31 and 32, the end of the parable, Jesus says, or actually the father says to the oldest son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. That's the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the older brother. That would only make sense. The Pharisees are the ones that ask oh. him, right? Oh, so that's interesting. They say the Pharisees, if you go read it, if you go look back. Well, the Pharisee is on the good end of this. He's he's not. Oh, interesting. Oh, okay. Right? Because they're talking about someone else. They're saying, Jesus, what do we do? What do you do with those people over there? And Jesus says, okay, you and I are the 99. Actually, we're the shepherd. We need to go after the lost sheep. You and I are the brother, the father and the brother. Like, we we'll need always to be with, with each other. Right? It only I wouldn't have looked at it that way. That's right. cool. So then, then we keep reading. They're still heading to Jerusalem. They get to Jericho. And when they approach the city, there is a, a man there that on the side of the road that says, son of David. You know, he's a crying out son of David. Right. And it's his disciples. It says his disciples say, um, this is actually, sorry, this is in Luke 19 right here. This is referring to Jerusalem, but I'm giving you the story right before that. You set the stage. The same right. thing happens in Jericho. And the disciples say, be quiet, Sagesi. Be quiet to that guy. Don't, don't say anything about Jesus being a Davidic king. That's a messianic term. And we're approaching this political and aristocratic hub of Jericho. Jericho and the 15-mile or 17-mile road to Jerusalem, those right. were the connection of two aristocratic hubs a lot of money passing through there a lot of uh, wealth and a lot of priests and a lot of bureaucrats so if you're going to approach a city and you're going to have some guy screaming out that you're the son you know basically messiah son of david his own disciples say be quiet okay so then what this is referring to in luke 19 is that after they make that trek they come over the mount of olives from jericho over the mount of olives and they're heading down toward the city and that's where they have a parade he's got a donkey and he, people are screaming that he's the Messiah, you know, son of David. And it's the Pharisees that say, teacher, order your disciples to stop. To say yeah, rebuke thy disciples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so again, that's right. And again, we have people spinning it by saying, oh, they're, they're the Pharisees again, 
following Jesus all along the way throughout his ministry, yapping at his heels, you know, trying to get digs in and jabs in and, and give him fits. And they, they say, be quiet. You're not the Messiah. Tell your people to stop. That's not what they're doing at all. As we saw in the previous episode, when the disciples told the guy to stop, they're entering a dangerous city during Passover. And so if you're going to go have people screaming that you're the Messiah, you'll be killed within a matter of days, right? Which is what happened. It ended up happening to Jesus. It doesn't make oh, sense. Oh, yeah, it did. Right? So, the so you're, thinking, you're thinking they're trying to quiet the disciples as a way to help Jesus out. They're not getting mad at everyone praising Jesus right. because they're in dangerous territory. And they're, yeah, and they're with him. And they know from Josephus, like we, we know from Josephus that, uh, and I list this in my book, I talk about a dozen such figures, like messianic type figures. And Rome, every time Rome gets to one of those people, they kill, they kill Thetis. They, they tried to kill this Egyptian guy, the Egyptian prophet. They killed all kinds of people. And they also killed their followers, right? They slayed, they, they killed over 400 followers of this Egyptian uh, prophet who was on the Mount of Olives who said, I'm going to go into the city and the walls are going to fall down, right? People know this. And so if you're just going to be with Jesus in a parade and Rome, like Roman soldiers are going to come storm this, like this messianic parade pharisees are not going to want to be there they're going to say you got to stop this okay so they're trying to save jesus's life right okay so if people are not necessarily convinced yet about the pharisees and the relationship between pharisees and yeah, jesus what else have you got for me pal here's in in matthew 21 mark 22 and luke 20 so we'll talk about this okay after, after he goes into the temple and he starts to contend with the priests it says that the priests tried to arrest him but they feared because people saw Jesus as a prophet. Okay, I remember that story. In Matthew and Mark, it's chief priests and elders. Like there's some little variations, the priests or chief priests or elders. It's the same people that are afraid because of the crowds. They leave and then it says they send back Pharisees to trap Jesus in his words. Okay, we already know from Josephus that that doesn't well, make there sense. There you go. Fer Pharisees are not doing the dirty work, are not of priestly establishment they don't like each other and they're certainly not going to just take orders and go to this holy man from galilee you know that it doesn't make sense so once again we get to luke this is why luke is my favorite gospel he seems to be the most sophisticated his his greek is much more sophisticated than in mark uh, right. his text resembles josephus in many ways and so in there it's the priests they leave and it says they sent back spies pretending to be righteous men those same words that are often connected with, associated with Pharisees, right? In other words, if we take all those gospel accounts, it's probably the fact that they're sending Pharisees back, people pretending to be Pharisees. And why are they, why are they sending back people pretending to be Pharisees? Because the people trusted them. Jesus would have trusted them. Otherwise, the story doesn't make sense. Oh. Right? Oh, I see the angle you're working. How interesting. Yeah, so they're trying to be extra. They're trying to be extra clever, pulling one up on him by sending people pretending to. Be, okay, interesting. Yeah, it doesn't make sense unless. And even if you take Mark and Matthew to saying they they went they sent back Pharisees to trap in his words. Okay, why right. would they send back Pharisees if they didn't think all of the masses and all the people trusted them? So it again, doesn't work. The spin of the author of Matthew or Mark or whatever they're trying to do doesn't work. Um, this is why. I routinely go back to a combination of Luke and Josephus. Yeah, here it is, verse 20, just for my audience and those who are going to hear this on the 
podcast eventually if I ever get around to updating. Uh, chapter 20, verse 20 of Luke. And they watched him and sent for spies, which should feign themselves just men that they might take hold of his words, that so they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. Yeah, that's interesting. And another strong, another point that uh, with my argument is that, and this is a strong one, we have right. numerous, numerous instances all throughout the Gospels and Josephus of people, the masses, protesting Herod, the, the temple establishment, Hasmonean king, it's everywhere. Uh, the Roman right. governor, uh, all over the place. This happens all the time, but we don't have not even one instance where any group of people protested or rioted against Pharisees. Not one. Right? Oh. Not one. So if you have, again, we're like, we're taking the gospel, we're, we're just taking right now the gospels at face value and saying if there's a man named Peter who tried to cut off, uh, you know, tried to defend Jesus with a, a small sword or dagger, if that's, if something like that were to happen and Jesus's disciples would fight for him, why, why wouldn't they, if these, again, if the Pharisees were so bad, why would his people not fight for him? Because it's not. Hey, I'm going to put up my dear friend Randall Bell's comment here real quick. Let's address this because I do respect Randy just as much as I respect you. I'm not getting this, he says. Jesus himself was consistently critical of the scribes and Pharisees. I think I'll go with Jesus on this one. Okay, we're gonna, we'll talk about that. Oh, okay, okay. So, Randall, welcome, by the way. Thanks for dropping in. Stick around. Uh, Dr. Hatch will certainly address this. Okay, yeah. So we are addressing right now possible reasons why uh, the Pharisees have been misunderstood based on the way the gospel authors have portrayed them, comparing and contrasting what's in, say, Matthew's gospel, who seems to be the most negative against the Pharisees, Right. And what Josephus has said about him, there's a historical inconsistency here. Someone's playing fast and loose with the information. It, uh, have I got that right, Trevin? Right. Is that and, a fair way to present that? Yeah, and if you remember those 38 episodes that we can just sort of look at sort of superficially before we dive into scholarship, 44% of those seem to be negative. And the others are, you know, people calling him master, like people like Nicodemus, people inviting him as an honored guest. But if we take that 44% and we can start a dissect every single one of those, one of them is the stoning of the woman. It doesn't show up in the early manuscripts. One of them is like the already one, the one that we talked about in the synagogue. So you can go right down the list. And after you're done, you're left with a very few, very small handful of hypocrite passages, which I'll deal with in a minute. So interesting. It's good to see. It's good to see Randall here. We've had a debate uh, online recently. So yeah, he 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 and I debated, but it's good to see him. Um, I love oh, you've people. debated Randy already? Yeah, and, and by the way, Randall, we're all good. I, I'm I'm totally cool. We, we we can. Hey, that's the whole fun of this. Everyone gets a voice. We're seeing all sides, so this is quite fun. Okay, so here's the Greco-Roman banquet, and I'll talk about this a little bit because it's also, you mentioned it a little bit, but it's it's key to my argument. So we have okay. all Jewish texts, all kinds of Jewish texts, early Jewish texts that show that a, a, a banquet, the philosophers did this, early Jews did this, where they would get together, and this, this certain banquet or symposia was a, in community, was a, a, a community boundary marker. 
So in the Greco-Roman world, the what you would have is you would have the guests, the host would invite guests, and then he would have an honored guest, and then they would what they would do is eat. He might anoint their head, he would wash their feet, they would do this sort of rituals, and then after they eat, they would go into a lounging area, and it says they would recline, and then they would debate. Uh, the philosophers would debate philosophy, and then in the Jewish community, they would debate Jewish law. We have all kinds of texts, early rabbinic, and I'll show you one text here. It was a form of worship. It was an extension of the temple and the synagogue where they would discuss Jewish law. They had purity rituals. They would have prayer. And this is what it, this was uh, about. So as you so, can see, so eating the, ba the banquet, eating food, getting together and, and, and having food and drink and being content with their food and raiment and all that. This right. is extension of the temple. Yeah, and here is, in fact, um, did I mention this earlier? Was this the last episode we did? If you look in um, rabbinic literature, you look at all the passages about Pharisees in the earliest strata of rabbinic literature, a full two-thirds of them about Pharisees are in relation to the banquet. They're a banquet group, right? They oh. would go to the synagogue, but they would also have these ceremonies or times that they would, this was a, yeah, this was a very sacred time for them, which is why. Jesus in the Last Supper, that's that banquet. It's a very special group of brother, brotherhood, um, where they would discuss the law and they would covenant with each other and they would, you know, there's all kinds of reason, things that they would do in there, right? Yeah. So these bottom, these bottom three, two, uh, these bottom three points you can see on the screen um, kind of talk about this where when they invite Jesus, there's some places where he also invites different sinners or different people um, into the banquet. And then Pharisees see this and they ask Jesus, are you a friend to these people? That's assuming that the people you're eating with are friends. Okay. And then Jesus acknowledges that the banquet ceremonies typically involve friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, people who can yes. donate to your cause, right? Yeah. So right yeah. there, the implications that that's not just me, me making it up. This is all throughout the Greco-Roman world, all throughout Jewish text. These are the people you eat with. And even Jesus acknowledges this is typical of friends. But then he extends it. He says, we also need to invite in other people, uh, you know, not just your friends and brothers and relatives, but we need to invite those who are outside, who are you know, downtrodden. Again, this is a later argument after the temple is destroyed when these texts are being written when Paul and Peter and everybody are debating on what happened in Antioch when there was this big rift about whether there's a mealtime and Paul and Barnabas decide to eat with someone else. Paul's over here. They, they decide to eat with Jews and Paul's eating with Gentiles and it blew up and they had to go to Jerusalem to have the Jerusalem Council to deal with this, right? That's where these settings are, they fit, okay? The Pharisees are not concerned with Jesus hanging out with. We always say that today. Oh, Jesus hung out with prostitutes and sinners. Okay, he probably ministered to them, but it, it, the Pharisees are talking about eating with them. The Pharisees themselves probably minister to these types of people in certain situations to bring them back into the house of Israel. But in this time, in this place, they're concerned with Jesus eating with them. They're impure. Possibly ritually contaminating himself, maybe. Absolutely. That's, that's the, whole, yeah, the whole point of it. Okay, so everybody follows me. Is it is everybody still on board following? Yes, on? yeah, yeah. This this is excellent. I love these slides. I love how you're leaving these up and talking about it. this is wonderful. And here's that text, Wisdom of Ben Sira. Oh, here we go. Wisdom Ben Sira. Okay. Uh -huh. 
It says, let your conversation, this is about the banquet etiquette, let your conversation be with men of understanding and let all your discussion be about the law of the Most High. <clears throat> let righteous men be your dinner companions. There's that word again. And let your mourning be in fear of the Lord. Do not reprove your neighbor at a banquet of wine and do not despise him in his merrymaking. Speak no work of reproach to him and do not afflict him by making demands of him. <clears throat> All right. So that that is really, we can, hopefully everybody understands the argument now that you have Josephus, the Gospels, and if you try to sift through that and get to the historical Jesus and you look at what these Pharisees are doing, when they're doing it, if if Jesus is being is put on trial and the Pharisees were present, he wouldn't have been killed. That's, this is why they had to do it at night, the sort of kangaroo court. Pharisees fall off. Like they're not in the passion narrative. They fall off. They're not there. And we know that because we have numerous places in Josephus. We got Gamaliel. We have Nicodemus. We have all in Josephus and the Gospels that agree with Josephus that the Pharisees were most lenient in punishment. Okay. Uh huh. So all uh, this question here: If Jesus was cordial with the Pharisees, and if he and the apostles were Pharisaic type Jews, then how do we explain? hostile rhetoric of some of the Gospels. Especially Matthew. Yep, especially Matthew. So here is, uh, let me just move this picture for a minute. If I can. Can I not move it? Okay. Okay, real quick. I'm going to interrupt you before you get to this. Okay. Your question as a non-religion scholar, where can I go to get the writings of Josephus and read his original source material? You can get the uh, Wiston translation, which is yeah, that's the most popular one. I noticed you used a different one in your book. Yeah, there's a better one. There, you can get the Loeb Classical Library if you can get a get a hold of that. They've got the Loeb. Yeah. They've got the you know you got the Greek and English, and then you also have the Brill, uh, if the Brill Josephus translation project by Steve Mason, who I mentioned wrote his dissertation on the Pharisees and Josephus, and those are, I mean they're expensive, but the Loeb Classical Library. Editions of Josephus, you can probably get pretty cheap. Yeah. Yeah, you can get them. You can absolutely even get Josephus, I think, in paperback now online, Randall. But yeah, Josephus is absolutely essential if if you're into the, if you want to get a, another, an outside source from the Bible of Jesus's era with the Jews then and their destruction, their temple and all, Josephus is unbeatable. Him and Philo, if I understand right, are the two main contemporaries of writers and their writings that we have. Do we have any others, Trevin, that you're aware of? I mean, uh, I, recommend, I, recommend, I recommend a few other sources. You can get Steve Mason's. Let me see if I have Oh, Steve Mason's another good scholar you'll want to look into, Randall. I was going to grab the book, but it's up here on my shelf. It's called Josephus and the New Testament. So he really talks about um, uh, a lot of the elements that are in the New Testament and Josephus. And yeah, yeah I know. I'm very envious of my friend Derek Lambert at MythVision. He's had Steve Mason on several times. Oh, I'm yeah. going to try to call Derek and say, hey, line me up and let me put Steve Mason on my show. He's very interesting, man. Yeah, he's phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah, he is. Okay, so let's get to the... The need to have enemies and allies. <laughs> so this this whole... This sounds like Mormon apologists in some respect. Oh, yeah, yes. This whole slide is to just to talk about... Um, this, this psychological need, I mean, this is Van McVulcan 
this is he's a political psychologist, and uh, I rely on a lot of his work and Freud and others. But Vemek Vulcan wrote a book called The Need to Have Enemies and Allies, and he says this is a psychological need that that's innate, and it's individuals do this and groups do this, where you you where you identify right as you can see on here targets of externalization. There's external factors or people that are making your life difficult, that are others. And if we didn't have them, they, we'd be better off, right? You, you always have, and you have allies and then you have enemies. And they talk about ethnocentrism, tribalism, identity formation. And, and as I say here, psychiatrists and others like Ben McVulcan would call ethnocentrism or nationalism a pathological contamination of the mental process. And then they say, because when we identify strongly with a particular group, we tend to lose the ability to be neutral, objective, and open-minded. Oh, wow. So yeah, we, I mean, this sounds like a defect in our psyche, doesn't it, as humans? I wonder why we have that need. Right, and we have this today. We've got Republicans, Democrats, and we have these binary groups. And Right, yeah, yeah. Also, the reason I talk about this in my book is to get the reader to, to focus on some of this so that we can funnel in to this same phenomenon in the ancient world. The philosophers were uh, really criticizing each other, and they, they would use the most hostile rhetoric. Okay, and so let me just show you this image. The reason why I have this here, it says you know, this lady in a bikini on the left, everything, she's referring to this Muslim woman on the right, everything covered but her eyes. What a cruel male-dominated culture. And then the Muslim woman said, nothing covered but her eyes. What a, what a cruel male-dominated culture. <laughs> that illustrates wow, the there we go. There's a message. <laughs> All right. Here wow. is... Here is Vemek Vulcan, four-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee. Again, a political psychologist, one of my favorite. He wrote all kinds of books. Before you start reading this, I'll read it. But he wrote all kinds of books on why people who were in close proximity, the Turks and the Greeks, uh, Northerners and Southern Germans, Israelis and Palestinians, uh, Spanish and Portuguese, are always at war with each other or tend to be the most hostile towards each other. And here's this quote that he kind of articulates this. Uh -huh. He says, it is interesting to contemplate the subtle fact that when the enemy often resembles us in obvious ways, sorry, I did mess that up. It is interesting to contemplate the subtle fact that the enemy often resembles us in obvious ways. While what we perceive to be his offense constitutes only a narrow area of disagreement. Freud spoke of the narcissism of minor differences in reference to the way small differences among people who are otherwise alike make for hostility and alienation. He was curious as to why people living in contiguous lands so often came into conflict, why Portuguese and Spanish were at odds, or the English and Scots, the Northern and Southern Germans, when each pair of opponents had so much in common. It seems that we often seek out as enemies or targets those like ourselves or our neighbors. In other words, familiar people. We focus obsessively when stressed on our differences in order to cling to the illusion that the enemy is quite unlike us. Think Democrats and Republicans largely the same other uh, other than small little issues but they're not talking about the massive issues they're talking about other little issues and the rhetoric is that they're so far different from us but the, the, the stoics and epicureans they did the same thing and i'm arguing that pharisees and early christians are doing the same thing he yes. says this process strengthens our sense of self and our sense of solidarity with our side yeah interesting okay? so let me give you a little bit more sort of framing and theoretical framing to, to then dive into what Matthew's doing. 
you have these people like Aristotle and Cicero writing books, the Art of Rhetoric and, you, and these oratory books on how to, the art of persuasion, how to defeat your opponent. And Aristotle, here's just a few points up here, but Aristotle says, you, in order to defeat your opponent, you use the most sharply worded insults. In other words, if you're, so he says, he gives some examples. If your opponent is perceived as impressive, you might label him arrogant. If your opponent is perceived as courageous, you would label him hot-headed or rash. If your opponent is clearly pious, you would accuse him of zealotry and hypocrisy. Okay, everybody right now in the uh, chat, I want you to start yelling at the top of your voice that I am arrogant, rash, and a hypocrite. <laughs> that, that way we know what I really am. <laughs> that is fascinating, though, isn't it? How we'll... How we'll uh, We'll see something in someone, maybe out of envy, perhaps, you think, and then we'll start labeling them. All this labeling, that's very interesting. Yeah, and, here, and here's Cicero, a Latin author. He okay. says, uh, you know, I'm just kind of summarizing what they say, and I read their whole books, but he says, sure. one skilled in rhetoric must convince his hearers that he himself displayed, like this is me, our group are good-natured, kind, calm, we're loyal, you know, we, we're... We're not covetous, you know, a lot of this sort of thing. And then, but the, you state the opposite, that your opponent is the opposite of these. And so here is a list that I, I forged through a lot of this classical literature and ancient literature. And here's a list of common words that show up among the philosophers and other Jewish writers, and, and Jewish writers at the time. So you have words like arrogant, boastful, evil-spirited, impious, liars, deceivers, flatterers, charlatans, demagogues, hypocrites, vipers, fools, magicians, perverts murderers, seekers of pleasures and wealth. These, and, it, and then there's others that are about hypocrisy. Ones who criticize others without examining themselves. Ones who make a great show out of virtue yet never practice it. Have the outward appearance of virtue but are themselves corrupt. Those who preach but do not practice. That's all over the literature, everywhere. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So I hope is watching this for his reactions to Jonathan Neville. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Neville. Here is, uh, and so here is my, just a sort of a snapshot of what the word hypocrite and what Matthew is trying to do. Okay. Because remember, a very small, when we get into your hypocrites and your whitewashed tombs, like that's really the only, like a small handful of words that are outside of a contextual context. They're just, it's just rhetoric. And here's, here's what this word means in the context. So the Greek word hypocrites denotes an outward show, a pretender, it's a play actor. That's the word when you say play actor. Somebody who's acting in the plays, uh, in the Greek and Latin plays, and it's, and it's specifically one who's disguised. So this is the theater, play actors in Roman society. Um, actors in Greece are more um, revered, but they're not in Roman society. The, the literature says that these people who are actors are skilled in deception. You would never do business with an actor because they're too good at disguising their uh, emotions and who they are. They can deceive. Um, <laughs> so they're often suspected of being prostitutes. These are people who are foreign, like foreign um, foreigners or free slaves would get a job as play actors. It's or politicians. <laughs> because of this, soldiers were not, they were forbidden to be actors. Oh, interesting. It was yeah. undignified. They said it's feminine. It's, uh, you know, unscrupulous. It's not, in fact, soldiers could get, uh, have their, um, their privileges as a Roman citizen, get that taken away. All right. So uh -huh. 
we finally get to Matthew and he says, do whatever the Pharisees teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. So he contradicts himself by claiming that Pharisees are hypocrites. In other words, he's saying they're actually living the way they should live, but they don't really mean it. They're putting on a disguise. Like he's inadvertently, when he uses the word hypocrites, he's saying they're just play actors, which means everybody can see that they are living the law. They're doing what they're, pra they're practicing it. But Matthew says that it's not. They, they don't really mean it. Well, how does Matthew know that? Once you start judging someone's motives and what's in their mind and their heart, you know, you don't. Yeah, interesting. So then he's saying, perhaps, yeah. Right, okay, so then we can, we can actually see this in the text. He says, they do all of their deeds to be seen by others. Okay, so he's acknowledging they actually do, they actually live the law the way they're supposed to. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They disguise their faces as to show others that they are fasting. Okay, and then he says they are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside they look beautiful, but on the inside they're full of bones of all kinds of filth, right? And they're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Okay, so here is an example of from Lucian, second century CE, just right after, uh, right during the same generation that Matthew's written. He says this about the philosophers who use this same kind of rhetoric. He says they practice direct, their practice directly opposed their preaching. But then he says they pretend to be pious and virtuous while marching along deep in haughty meditation, while elevating their eyebrows, wrinkling their foreheads, and letting their beards grow long. They go about hiding loathsome habits under a false garb, like actors in a tragedy. For if you take away their gold-embroidered beautiful robes, nothing is left but a comical little creature hired for the show. <laughs> he's making fun of the philosophers because they tease each other a lot, and, they, and he says they act all like. Okay, this is late first century, early, early second century rhetoric that's being used to describe your opponent. Now, it's possible, obviously we don't know for a fact, it's possible that what Matthew saw here is actually they really did act like all, like they were, you know, the most righteous and I'm this reverent man and I want everybody to see that. But it, it, you can also contextualize this in, in the, the rhetoric of the day after these groups have become enemies, after the temple's destroyed. Right. So let me give you a little bit of something else to think about. In Matthew, Jesus condemns Pharisees to hell, Gehenna, for being descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Okay, that's strange to me. This shows this shows in Matthew 23 that what where Matthew, where he's what he's trying to do. Isn't it strange that Jesus would say, okay, I'm gonna condemn all you Pharisees to hell for something you didn't even do? Your, your ancestors did it. And they murdered prophets. Well, which prophets? We're talking about the time of Jeremiah? It doesn't make sense. It's not in Luke. It's not anywhere else. It's only in Matthew. It's not in John. Only in Matthew. Yeah, interesting. He, and then Jesus can. You think maybe he did that? You think maybe he's doing this because of the type of audience he's writing for? He, didn't each one of the uh, gospel authors uh, target a? Maybe it was his particular group too. It might not be the audience he's targeting. But yeah, yeah. yeah. We're not gonna have, we're not gonna have enough time today to talk about the Jerusalem Council and how the early Christian schism influenced the authors of the Gospels, but we'll get to that another time. But okay, my, arg my argument is that Matthew is trying to make an argument to his Gentile and Roman audience. That's his audience. He's yes. writing to Jews. He's writing to these God-fearers who are Judaizers, but he also knows that he's also a Pauline. He agrees with Paul all the time, and he's a, a Gentile-inclusive Jew. And right. so he. this is after the temple is destroyed. This is after the whole rift between Paul and Peter. And 
and, and Pharisees were there in the Jerusalem Council. Pharisees, after Paul gave his spiel on what Gentiles should be doing, should we have to should, should they be baptized? Should we require circumcision. Paul yeah. gives his gives his um, interpretation of what should happen. James gives his, and then Pharisees. It says Pharisees who were followers of Jesus stood up, and again that supports my argument. The Pharisees, I mean, they probably had a lot of followers following Jesus, and therefore they they got a microphone, so to speak, at this council, right? Yeah. To represent the Pharisaic faction. So my argument is that Matthew is trying to continue this debate about who belongs. Who doesn't belong? And by that point, Pharisees, that rift had alienated Pharisees from Gentile inclusive um, followers of Jesus. And Matthew's trying to make the argument that Pharisees should be seen as hypocrites or play actors. They should lose any kind of Roman citizenship if they have it. They should have no privileges. They should, they are the dark underbelly of society. Everybody should reject them. So that's what Matthew's trying to do. Uh-huh. So he then condemns them for sins they have not yet committed. He says, I will send you prophets, sages, and scribes, some of you, some of whom you will kill. Again, it's not he's not stating what they did. They're saying your ancestor did something, your, your descendants are going to do something, therefore I'm condemning you to hell. And we're thinking, like, that's not a good look for Jesus. I mean, that's that's highly inflated rhetoric from Matthew, right? And you yeah. see, you see the Dead Sea sect, you see the same language here. They call people seekers of smooth things. In other words, they're flatterers. They call yeah, them they call devilish mirrors. It's all over the place. So this is, you build a straw man. This is Aristotle. This is Cicero. And then you hack it to pieces, bravely hack it to pieces, so that you can show all the populace that you are different than your ideological uh, opponents. Not only different, but better. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and then it's we've got, I mean, this is just another, I'm not going to read all this, but you have Paul. Doing the same thing. He's calling his opponents dogs and evil workers. Yeah, he did, didn't he? And he was calling, yeah, didn't he? Uh what what did he actually call some of the apostles in Jerusalem? Pseudo apostles yeah, or something like that. Apostles, yeah. He was really harping on them, man. Yeah, and this is uh this is a an outgrowth of that. This oh, there it is right there, the second bullet point. Sorry, yeah. False yeah, he called his opponents false apostles, deceitful. Yeah. Yep. I'll talk about all of this in a future episode of, of Paul and everything, but you can see how this rhetoric. Um, so it's in the New Testament, too. Everybody was doing it. Right. Well, it was the age of rhetoric, according to Nibley. Yep. And then what do we have here? Okay. So, and then this is, I'll just kind of conclude here, and then we can just kind of wrap it up. Maybe people have questions. Sure. But I just, I jotted this down just today. I, I stuck this in here to, to not forget. I've had a debate with some of my colleagues. This is a friendly debate, and we've actually done it on YouTube. Um, Karen Bielstein and I and Avram Shannon did one on uh, the Scriptures Are Real podcast. But there, some people are challenged. Some people, like Randall and others, like some students have done this, and a few other people will use. The, you know, they'll they'll push back and they'll say something like, "Well, it says right here in Matthew 23, they're hypocrites," and, and so then I have to go into Matthew 23 and show the large majority of this is sort of inflated or it doesn't make sense or Jesus is condemning them for strange reasons. And so those very few passages that don't match with Acts, Josephus, Luke, if you, if you take all these, these very small group of passages, that's what we get, highly inflated rhetoric. It doesn't doesn't fit a, 20, a first century, early first century setting. It fits late century, uh, late first century. So there, this first bullet point right here, Pharise Jerusalem Pharisees and Galilean Pharisees, some of my colleagues 
are arguing that there are two different factions. There's the Galilean Pharisees who were more uh, amenable to Jesus, inviting him to, you know, to their banquet. And then when he went to Jerusalem, there were a different group of Pharisees and where there's a power struggle and Jesus had his people there and the Pharisees had their people. And that's where um, the hostile rhetoric comes in because that's actually Matthew 23, your whitewashed tombs. And I guess it's possible, but it doesn't make sense to me either because we don't find evidence of that. What we do find is that we have Pharisees following Jesus to Jerusalem. And then once they get to Jerusalem, they fall off the, the story where he's being killed and, and put on trial. And you also have Nicodemus, a Jerusalem Pharisee, supporting him. You have Pharisees on the Temple Mount supporting him, and the people saw them as prophets. It doesn't make, we just don't see, I don't know how that would work in, like, on the ground in real time of you have these different factions. I think the reason why some of my colleagues and even some other evangelical scholars are trying to make that argument is to save the text. They want to be able to say, no, Jesus really did say all that stuff about hypocrites and whitewashed tombs because that's the text. This is our text. It has to be. Well, but we also know, I, I get that, yeah, it's all good. Um, but but we also know that um, the, uh, I mean, Burton Mack has one on each, each one of the apostles, each one, the apostles, sorry, each one of the authors of the gospel, Matthew, and then you have Mark and all, each, John especially, there's a big whoop-de-doo a while back on the who and where and when did they live? Who were the community that John was writing either for or writing to? And that wasn't necessarily the same community as Mark or or Luke, etc. And so they they all are post Jesus and post Paul. Paul is the earliest writing in the New Testament. So being the later uh, authors, I mean, I understand why your opponents want, they want the text to be what it is, but it's late, relatively <laughs> speaking, I mean, but it's not Jesus eyewitness stuff. This is not the testimony of Mark. This is not the testimony of Luke. It's their gospel that they wrote. They they were not eyewitnesses. That's what I'm trying to get at. So, right. yeah, yeah, it, yeah they, that gets sticky. <laughs> they, and I, I, I suppose you know some people say, well, Trevin, you're honestly saying that literally every single Pharisee was all like cuddly and nice to Jesus. No, that's not that's not how we when we right. talk about groups or expectations of a group. Or even an insider, the Pharisee insider, like this is how this is what we stand for. This is what we've always stood for. We want people to follow the law. We want the king, if there was a king, or the priest to to conduct the temple the way it should be. Like right. we know what happens to us when we didn't follow the law in the days of Jeremiah. We have to follow the law. So yeah, I, I'm not saying that there's no Pharisees that would have hated Jesus or disagreed with him. Sure. sure. But the the evidence in the text shows that these are rabbinic style debates about Sabbath or about other things. And so you take all the data and pile it on top of each other. You got Acts and Josephus and Luke, and then you work with the text in those other places to, to, to rely on, you know, historical data, whatever you can find, archaeology, uh, a few passages in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you pile it up and it just simply doesn't make sense. If we're going to have this tiny little body of passages over here in Matthew 23 and Matthew 16, 
and just ignore all of the other data about what a Pharisee, clearly they're popular with the masses. Nobody's protesting against them. Uh, yeah. Jesus is going to, to lunch with them. They're warning him of Herod, all that kind of stuff. And then they, they're not present at his trial. So this is where right. I'm putting all of Matthew's rhetoric. It's just that. It's, it's Aristotle and Cicero style rhetoric to defeat your opponent after they had already become enemies when the gospel was being written. So do you mind if I say real quick, um, sure. no more questions. We want to, I want to tie this up, not just with the argument, but then to come back to say, to, to the question of why does this matter? This is just some, you know, academic exercise, but it does matter. And it, the reason why it matters is because if I, if I, I might risk being like inflated in my language, uh, or dramatic, if we continue to perpetuate these notions about Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, I mean, the reason why the Jewish nation survived the destruction of the temple is because of the Pharisees. Pharisees were the proto-rabbis. It was because of the Pharisaic system, not because of the Sadducees or the Herodian family or anything else. It was because of the Pharisaic system that it was able to translate or to, trend, I guess, to transition the Jewish people from a temple system to a non-temple system. And then they carried, you know, they, they went into the rabbinic period that are very Pharisaic-like Jews. And then you get off into the middle medieval period, early modern and modern periods, where Jews today who follow Jewish law and who follow the Talmud and who follow early Jewish texts are Pharisaic Jews or rabbinic Jews. They don't call themselves that, but they are Pharisaic Jews. So then when Latter-day Saints or other Christians come along and say, don't be a Pharisee, and the dictionary definition of Pharisee is one who is judgmental and sort of this neurotic, unhinged people who are fixated on the stupidest little things. That uh, denigrates an entire group of people whose leaders were very moral and ethical. And, and it's because of their system that allowed an entire nation to survive um, the Roman conquest and the destruction. Okay, so... I think it does matter. And Christians later used all these same passages to demonize Jews. Millions of Jews were persecuted, especially every year during Passover, killed, and led to the Holocaust. So, yeah, I, I don't want to try to be dramatic, but if we're going to perpetuate bad logic, bad interpretations, just so we can perpetuate the status quo and the Christian narratives, I think we're contributing to all of that oppression, right? After the fact, it could be that we're, you know, we're not doing any favors for anyone because Jews are still being called. In fact, the Philadelphia shooter, or no, sorry, the Pittsburgh shooter in 2019 went into a, a synagogue, gunned down 11 people, and they went to his social media, the police went to his social media and looked in there and they said, oh, we found out why he did this. And he says right here, it's because John 8, 44, Jews are the devil. Right. It still matters. It matters to me because I communicate with Jews and I've written my master's thesis on this and I've been in countless settings. I'm going through to Jordan this summer and Israel this summer with a group of scholars. And I see how it impacts and affects their society to have yeah. these larger issues. Um, shots taken at them. So it does matter. 